We take up once more our study of the words found in Paul's epistle to the Romans in chapter 8 and verse 17. The 17th verse in the 8th chapter of Paul's epistle to the Romans. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. Now it's the understanding of these words that I've just read that truly enables one to sing the hymn that we've just been singing as it should be sung. It is on the basis of this kind of teaching that it's possible for a man like Isaac Watts to write such words. Now we began our consideration of this statement last Friday night and there we were concerned just to emphasize this one great principle that um, we as the chil- as children are of necessity heirs. This uh, doctrine which I showed you is such a cardinal and central doctrine in the whole of the biblical teaching, but which for some peculiar reason Christian people tend to neglect, and especially at this present time. However, we saw there its great prominence everywhere in the scripture. It is the thing that is held before us, perhaps more than anything else. But now we must resume and continue that because the apostle goes out of his way to say not only that we are heirs and that we should be looking forward to a great inheritance, he takes the trouble to define it in two senses. He says that we are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Now, in other words, he is working out this whole concept of our heirship in these two particular ways. And as he takes the trouble to do so, we must follow him. He obviously has got some very special reason for doing this. And I think the reason is fairly obvious. His ultimate objective, as we've been emphasizing all along, is the absolute certainty of all this. He's out to give these people a full assurance. So he's not content merely to say that they're heirs because they're children. He says, look here, you're heirs of God. And you are joint heirs with Christ. Now then, what what does he mean by these fuller expositions, this working out of the central statement in this dual manner? Well, of course, the first emphasis is this. That... um, We are heirs of God. You would have thought that that was obvious in and of itself, that the whole context is the Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs. Well, it's obvious, isn't it, that we must be therefore heirs of God. Yes, but the apostle doesn't take it for granted. He, he, He says it. He underlines it. He repeats it for emphasis. He wants to make quite sure that nobody misses the significance of this. Now, that's uh, interesting as it throws light upon the great apostle as a teacher, the incomparable teacher. And one of the first and most important essentials in any teacher is never to take anything for granted. It's the most fatal error that that we can ever make. Nothing must be taken for granted. In other words, these things have got to be brought right out and underlined. And that's what the apostle is doing. Well, now, why does he do it? Well, let's put it like this. Any heir 
is always in a very special position. This is something that we're all familiar with in ordinary life, in, in secular affairs. Uh, perhaps these things are not as prominent as they used to be, but uh, certainly in olden times, in families, there might have been a number of children, but uh, the, uh, the first was the heir. It wasn't that the parents paid less attention to, to the others, but that they paid more attention to him. The heir is, was always, and still is, of course, in a very special position. He's carrying on the line. He's going to keep the name going. And therefore, in every family from the royal family downwards, the heir is, is always in this peculiar and special position and always receives special treatment and special attention for that reason. His education may perhaps be different in certain respects. He's given certain privileges because of his position. Now, that's common to all heirship. And the apostle seems to me to be saying that, but that he puts it then like this. He says, now, if that is true of every heir, do you realize, as you should, the peculiar blessings and the exceptional privilege of those who are heirs of God? That's what he's saying. That we've got to realize that because we are the heirs of God, that certain things are true of us. Now, what are these? Well, let me just uh, suggest some to you. Uh, I can't uh, deal with this exhaustively, and I'm not even going to try to do so. I'm going to show you certain lines which you can work out for yourselves. Here's one which is very important. Because we are heirs of God, the things that have been promised us and the things which are coming to us because we are heirs are things which are absolutely safe. I mean in this way, that there is no possible, no conceivable danger that we shall ever be robbed of this inheritance. Why not? Well, one reason is this. Because the one who's promised us these things is God. Now, you know, we all know when we're dealing with human beings, we're dealing with changeable beings. You may be a favorite of a person. History is full of this kind of thing. Our men might have been a favorite of a king or of some great men, and in a good mood, while this person is the favorite, the king of the great men makes great and lavish promises. But then, being capricious and changeable and sinful, he may take a point against this favorite, may dismiss him, changes his will immediately, and the man who is going to have almost everything gets nothing. Cut out of the will, we say. Now, that's the sort of thing that happens in life, isn't it? You can never be sure of anything promised by a man. He may become diseased. Many things may happen to him. Other influences may be brought to bear upon him. There are great tragedies in the world because of that. And so the apostle, you see, goes out of his way to say this. We are not only heirs, but we are heirs of God. And he means this. That the thing is absolutely certain. The will, if you like, will never be changed. Why not? Well, because, as the this same apostle in writing to Titus in the first chapter, second verse, puts it like this. God, which cannot lie. What a statement. What a glorious statement it is. You see, the apostle is there writing in his usual manner to Titus, and so he puts it like this. Paul, a servant of God, 
and an apostle of Jesus Christ according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledging of the truth which is after godliness in hope of eternal life which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. It's a good thing the apostle broke it up, isn't it, and said that we are heirs of God. God can't lie. God can't change. He's the father of lights with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. This is the most wonderful thing in the universe. When God says a thing, well, it's eternally said, and there'll never be any change. God cannot lie. He cannot change. So as God has made these promises to us, as God has said that we are his heirs, there's never need to, to have any kind of fear that he may go back on it or change it or modify it. Never. Heaven and earth shall pass away, said his son, while he was here on earth, but my word shall not pass away. And it's true of all these great promises of God to us. Or, if you like, you can take it as it's put in that notable statement by the author of the epistle to the Hebrews in chapter 6. You remember how he puts it. It's the same point exactly. He says here, men verily swear by the greater and an oath for... I'm reading Hebrews 6, 16. For men verily swear by the greater and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife. Wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel. I wonder what this new translation of that is. I'm sure it isn't as good as that. The immutability of his counsel confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. Isn't it glorious and magnificent? The truth itself and the expression of it here. So we have this hope as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth in into that within the veil. Well, now then, there is one great deduction which we draw at once. And the apostle I'm trying to show goes out of his way to say, you're heirs of God. Put your emphasis there. Remember who, to whom you are heirs and who has made the promise to you. Very well. There is the grandest thing of all. But let's go on a bit. He's also anxious, of course, to bring out his care for us. As I've been indicating already, there is always this special attention paid to the heir he's taken special care of because he is the heir. And the father keeps his eye upon him. He's proud of him. He sees the future coming through this one. And therefore, I say he pays this exceptional, uh, gives this exceptional amount of attention to him. Well, now then, take this up again. We are heirs of God. And what does it mean? Well, the scripture is full of answers to that question. One of them, which our Lord himself gave on one occasion, was this. He says, you know, because you are in this relationship, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. And that's care, isn't it? What's the care of an earthly father to his heir in comparison with this? The very hairs of your head are all numbered. You're as precious as that to him. He not only knows all about you, his interest and his concern about you are such that, well, it goes down to that extent 
And there's nothing beyond that. And so we've got a great statement like this made by the Son of God again, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. It's all right. He says, don't be troubled. He talks in the context of troubles and tribulations and trials and things like that. But fear not, little flock. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And very well, you needn't worry. Uh, so that having determined this and having pledged himself to this, nothing which is necessary in our preparation for that and for inheriting this kingdom will ever be neglected. Oh, how easy it is to work this out in detail. What does this man do who's got an heir? Well, he sends him to the best school he knows of. Sees he gets the best training and the best preparation. Well, God does exactly the same thing with us. Does some extraordinary things to us. You remember how we are told in uh, Hebrews 12 that he sometimes even sends us to rather a painful school. You remember how it's put in Hebrews 12. Verse 6, whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom his father chasteneth not? But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons. Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but he for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now there's no greater measure of God's concern for us than that. And what is more important for us than to realize that? Now I'm not going into this deeply tonight because the apostle is going on to elaborate that. When he adds, for instance, at the end of this 17th verse, if so be that we suffer with him, we shall also be glorified together. I'm going to deal with that later on. But here it is in principle. That it is because we are heirs that God puts us into this gymnasium where we seem to be having rough treatment at times. Well, it's a good thing, says this man. You should deduce from that your heirship and your sonship. It's because you are going into that great position as the heirs of God that he takes all this trouble with you. He feeds you. He clothes you. He's concerned about everything that happens to you. And he shows it supremely, I say, in that matter of chastisement. But then consider this. Here's another very important thing. We can be quite sure that that care of us, which is taken by God, will go on. Now, here again you see the contrast between the human father and the divine father. The human father does things in fits and starts. He for a while exercises discipline, then he becomes slack, and the child doesn't know where it is because he doesn't know what his father's thinking at the moment. He never does anything right, therefore, because the Father is changeable and capricious. But it isn't like that with God. God goes on with everything, and he'll never cease. You see the apostle writing face to face as he was with death, which might take place at any moment to the Philippians, puts it in that memorable statement in the sixth verse of the first chapter, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you, will perform it 
until the day of Jesus Christ. Now what a comfort this is and what a consolation that the treatment, the preparation is something that will go on without ceasing right until the day of Jesus Christ, the day for which we are looking. Doesn't matter what changing circumstances may be, the apostle tells them, I may be taken away from you, many things may happen to you, it doesn't matter, he says, God will not abandon this. Once he starts, he goes on. God never has left anything incomplete, he never will. He which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. And another way of putting that, which I rather like, is this. And it's a most comforting thing, that he will do this even in spite of us. Because oftentimes we hear about this inheritance and about the glory, and then, oh, but we say, how can I ever get there? I'm weak, I'm frail, I'm fallible. I'm changeable. I dare not trust my sweetest frame. I never know what I'm going to be like tomorrow morning. And I wonder whether I'll not falter and fail finally by the wayside. Have I got sufficient strength and power to guarantee that I'm ever going to arrive at that great goal and enjoy the inheritance? Well, the answer is given again, of course, by the apostle. And this time this particular answer is given in Ephesians 1. You remember the three things that the apostle was praying for the Ephesians. He prays that the eyes of their understanding may be enlightened. I'm reading verse 18 of Ephesians 1. Why? Well, first, that we may know what is the hope of his calling. Know something about the nature, the character of this hope. Secondly, the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. I mentioned that last Friday. Then thirdly, what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us with that believe? His power. See, it doesn't depend upon ours, it's upon his. And the apostle says, look here, if you only knew something about the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, well, what sort of power is it? Well, he says it's like this. It's the power, uh, according to the working of his mighty power. This is the description of this power. It's like the power which he implied when he, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named not only in this world but also in that which is to come. In other words, the power that is working in us is the power of the resurrection. He repeats it again at the end of the third chapter of the epistle to the Ephesians. Now unto him who is able to do for us exceeding abundantly above all that we can ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us. Unto him be all praise in the church throughout all the ages, world without end. Now then, do you know of anything more comforting than that? You see, we are heirs of God. And because we are heirs of God, this is the power that is working in us and which will perfect the work that has been begun until eventually we shall be faultless and blameless without spot or wrinkle or any such thing standing before him in the glory. All right, but let's go on to something that follows, as it were, from that. 
Because of this, we are entitled to say that uh, there is nothing outside us either that will ever be able to rob us of this. You see, having seen that nothing in us can ever prevent our getting there, but what about things that are outside us? What about the world and the flesh and the devil, the devil especially? What about all these forces that are so antagonistic? The world is full of them. We are set in an evil world. Principalities and powers, rulers of the darkness of this world, spiritual wickedness in high places. It's all against us. Everything seems to be against us to drive us to despair. Are not these things going to rob us of the ultimate inheritance? And the answer is, no, no, you are the children of God, the heirs of God. So you see, it means this. Our Lord put it, first of all, very clearly in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 6. Let me read verses 19 and 20. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. Perfectly true, isn't it? You can't hold on to anything in this world, moth and rust, insidiously, without observation, creep in. There's decay going on when you don't see it. You look at a solid block of wood, you say, that'll last forever. Then you hear the next day that the whole thing has suddenly collapsed. Why? Well, it had been eaten right inside. Dry rot or worm or something like that. It was nothing but dust and powder. The whole thing collapsed. It was just a facade. Well, that's the world, isn't it? So don't lay up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break through and steal. Well, lay up instead treasures for yourselves in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and where thieves do not break through nor steal. And they never will. There's no moth in heaven. There's no rust in heaven. There are no thieves in heaven. They can never make an entry. Heaven is shut to them. They can never get in. Well, there it is at the beginning. But then you remember our Lord adds to that in John 10, 28 and 29. In just that we may know this absolute safety and assurance of our position. Let me read these great words of John 10 to you. 28 and 29. And I gave unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. It's absolute, you see. It's absolute security, this. We are heirs of God. And God, our Heavenly Father, takes that kind of care of us. No man, no power, nothing at all, will ever be able to pluck us out of his hand. Well, then we come to the last verses of this very 8th chapter of Romans which we are reading. So the apostle, you see, puts it like this in verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? In the light of all he's been saying. Who then shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Nay. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. I am persuaded, he is certain, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us 
from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We are heirs of God and therefore we can never be robbed of this inheritance. Let Peter have the last word on this matter this evening. The first epistle of Peter, chapter 1. This is how he puts it beginning at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again into a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You can't add to that, can you? It's an inheritance which is incorruptible, undefiled. It'll never fade away. Why? Well, because it's being reserved for us, kept for us in heaven by God himself. We are heirs of God. So we can be quite sure that nothing from within us or without or anywhere else shall in any way be able to rob us of this inheritance which is going to be ours because we are the heirs of God. And then my last point concerning this matter is this. The fact that we are heirs of God implies of necessity that we are given the enjoyment of God himself even while we are in this life and in this world. Now it works like this. An heir is always let into certain knowledge and certain secrets that are not always divulged even to other children in the same family because it's a part of his training, a part of his instruction, a part of his preparation for the day when he'll enter into the inheritance. And there's nothing more wonderful in life than that. I'm sure all of us who are old enough to do so looking back across life will treasure as perhaps some of the most wonderful moments in our experience when our parents or somebody in that position began to tell us certain things. They said, now you're old enough, and I can tell you now. Might even have told you of certain problems, certain worries, certain anxieties in the family. Told you perhaps of certain prospects. You were let into the secret. You were taken into this intimate kind of knowledge because of your position and because of your relationship. And you know it's equally true of us as heirs of God. God tells his heirs certain of his own secrets. Nobody else knows them. I was referring to that a few weeks ago. The white stone you see in the book of Revelation, the hidden manna. The world knows nothing about them. The world is utterly ignorant of these things. You remember how one of our hymns puts it very well. Let me just read it to you. It comes to my mind as I'm speaking. That hymn which begins, Behold the amazing love of God the Father hath bestowed on us the sinful sons of men to call us sons of God. Concealed as yet this honor lies by this dark world unknown. A world that knew not when he, a world that knew not when he came in God's eternal Son. But we know. That's the thing. The world doesn't know. The world doesn't understand. There's nothing about these things at all. 
regards us as fools for doing what we are doing tonight when we might be in a cinema or watching a football match or looking at the television. What an utter waste of time, they said. But you see, we are being let into the secrets here. Our Heavenly Father is treating us as heirs. And what he does is he reveals things about himself to us as the human father does on an infinitely greater scale. He lets us into views of aspects of his own glory. Now, all that happens to us in this life. You see, the heir is given a foretest, he's given something. Well, we've already referred to that. The Holy Spirit is not only sealed, but he's earnest. That's why we heard it again in that hymn at the beginning. That even here in this earthly ground, we begin to draw something of the fruits which we shall draw in fullness in glory. The men of faith have found glory begun below. Celestial fruits on earthly ground from faith and hope may grow. We are marching to Zion, yes, and as because we are, because we are as, we are being given something of uh, first taste and foretaste of this glorious provision that is awaiting us in the inheritance. And I say that is mainly a knowledge of God himself. Realizations of his presence, all that comes through the sealing of the Spirit, it's all a part of this. But you see, it's designed to make us certain of the inheritance, to give us this assurance until the redemption of the purchased possession. Now, even an Old Testament saint knew something about this. Abram, we are told, was the friend of God. You see, even as Enoch before him walked with God, and the whole notion of that walking is conversing, talking. I like to picture that, that God was talking to Enoch and telling him something of what he was going to do, giving him a little preview of the coming of the Son. The Old Testament saints were given that Abram, the friend of God. And God telling him some of his secrets. And so the author of the 73rd Psalm is able to cry out in verse 25 saying, Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside thee. Nothing matters, he says, but this, that I know thee. I have nobody in heaven but thee. And there's nothing that I desire upon earth beside thee. What has the world got to give? No, no. Fading is the worldling's pleasure or treasure, all his boasted pomp and show, solidized and lasting treasure, pleasure none but Zion's children know. And here God, I say, because we are his heirs, speaks to us in this way, lets us into the secrets, gives us an understanding, gives us glimpses of what's going to be true of us, anticipates it all. And it's the most thrilling thing that can ever happen to an heir. And you and I are heirs of God. Very well. There's the first way in which the apostle works it out. But let me touch for a moment on the second. We are heirs of God and secondly we are joint heirs with Christ. Why did he trouble to say this, you think? Well, it's the same thing again. He was so anxious that these Roman Christians should understand the meaning of it all and should enter into the rich enjoyment of it all. Joint heirs with Christ. Well, the first thing that tells us is this. It explains how we become heirs, doesn't it? 
It's because, in a sense, we are joint heirs with Christ that we are heirs at all. How do I say that? Well, I say that for this reason, that Hebrews 1, 2 reminds us that God has appointed the Son heir of all things. He is the heir. And you noticed again how Paul, in that third chapter of the epistle to the Galatians, which we read at the beginning, did a most extraordinary thing. Did you notice that? It's often missed. Where he says in verse 16, Now to Abram and his seed were the promises made. He says not, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. The promises are really all made to Christ Jesus, the Lord. He is the heir of all things. And it's very important that we should realize that for this reason. That we realize that we only become heirs because we are incorporated into Christ. Because we are in him. We are children of God through him. We become the heirs of all things because of our union with him. Now, we needn't stay over this. Chapter 5, verses 12 to 21. Establish that for us once and forever, I trust. That we are no longer in Adam, but we are in Christ. We inherited the consequences of the action of that one man, Adam. We are now inheriting the consequences of the actions of the second, the second Adam. This second man, this last Adam, Christ. And we are in him, as he works out, as we've seen in chapter 6. Crucified with him, buried with him, risen with him. We are in him. Yes, says Ephesians 2, we are even seated in the heavenly places in him now. In other words, it all comes to us because of our relationship to him. And we must never lose sight of that. That, of course, becomes important in this way. He himself also has made a promise to us. Let me read you out of Luke chapter 22. Verses 29 and 30. Luke 22, verses 29 and 30. And I appoint unto you a kingdom, as my Father hath appointed unto me, that ye may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. There is our Lord's specific and particular promise to us. As the Father has appointed him, he appoints to us. So our relationship to God is always in and through him. And we are heirs, really, because we are joint heirs with Christ. And there you get it again. You remember right in the last book of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, in chapter 3 and in verse 21, where we read this. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. Very well. I therefore draw this deduction from it. It's important that I should realize that over and above being an heir of God, I am a joint heir with the Lord Jesus Christ. If anybody goes out of this service uncertain about his inheritance... Well, I have only one conclusion to draw, that is that you're blind and deaf. 
You see, the scripture wants to make this thing absolutely certain to us. You would have thought in a sense that nothing is more certain than what I've been saying. That we are heirs of God. Well, says Paul, I'll go further. We are not only heirs of God, we are joint heirs with Christ. How does that go further? Well, it goes further like this. Have you noticed how often the apostle in his writings speaks like this? Blessed, he says, be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why didn't he say, blessed be our God and Father? Why does he say, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ? It's a very wonderful thing, then. I think I may have quoted here once on some Sunday what I heard of an old preacher once saying in expanding that statement, and I, I think it's the perfect exposition. He said, you know, we must thank God for that, that he didn't just say, Blessed be God, who is our Father. He said there are certain poor, unfortunate people in this world to whom that sort of statement would not be a comfort at all. Their only idea of a father is a drunken brute who comes home many nights a week and smashes up the home and who kicks them. That's their idea of a father. It's the only father they've ever known. So to tell them just merely that God is Father is not enough. Ah, he said the apostle was inspired to add that further statement. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. How does that help us like this? Seeing the Lord Jesus Christ, reading about him. We know what he is like. Well, like Father, like Son, like Son, like Father. One like that, said the old preacher, couldn't have the sort of father that some of these children have had. So it's God and Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's the same sort of idea here, I believe. We are not only heirs of God, we are joint heirs with Christ. It means this, you see. The devil will come to us and tempt us. And he'll try to shake our confidence. And say, oh, you, yes, you say that God has given you an oath that... Uh, He's going to give you this, that, and the other because you are his children. But you know, God can't give blessings to people who are sinners and who fail and who've broken their vows and their pledges so often. Well, it's all right, says Paul, I can meet the answer. We are heirs of God because we are in Christ. It comes to us through him. Very well then. He is the only begotten Son of God. He is the only one of whom God has said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He'd always pleased God and he never displeased him in anything. We've displeased him often in many things. But here is one who's never displeased him. Here is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And there was never a moment when he wasn't. And the promise is to him. All the promises are to him. And therefore we can be absolutely certain. We get them through him. They'll all come to him. And we are in him. We are part of him. We are joined to him. And therefore they will of necessity come to us. Not only that. He is at the head of this great procession. Looking unto Jesus, the author, file leader and finisher of our faith. He's at the head of the procession of these children. Behold me, he says, and the children which thou hast given me. 
He's the firstborn amongst many brethren. We are walking after him. He's going to enter and we enter after him. That's the argument. We'll very well consider the one who is in this position. He is the word through whom all things were created and without whom is nothing made that is made. Not only that. Already, all things have been put into his hands. Listen to him at the end of Matthew 28. All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Already, he's got it. He's seated at the right hand of God in the glory, waiting until his enemies shall be made his footstool. The forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus. He's already there. He said, I go to prepare a place for you. Let not your hearts be troubled. He believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. So you see, it does add to it, doesn't it? It makes it absolutely certain in every way. Not only that, he's already conquered every enemy that is set against us. Conquered the devil when he came to tempt him repeatedly. Defeated him utterly. Exposed him and put him to an open shame upon the cross. Triumphed over him there in that. Has conquered death and the grave. The last enemy has been conquered. He's risen triumphant over all. And we are in him and we are joined heirs with him. It's a good thing, isn't it? If you put a little bit of money into any concern, the first thing you do if you're a wise man is this. You say, who are the directors? Who are the people running this business? Who else has got money in? Ah, so-and-so's in. All right. It's a comfort to know that his name is there. He's with you in it. Very well, multiply that by infinity. And the Lord Jesus Christ is with you in this. He's underwritten it all. He's already received the inheritance. And we belong to him, and we are joined heirs with him. The thing is absolutely certain. Nothing shall ever be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, my friends, there it is. Thank God that the apostle didn't just leave it at saying that because children, then heirs. Thank God he went on and said, moved and led by the Spirit, heirs of and joint heirs with Christ. His name is on the prospectus with us. It's there on the document. He sealed it with his own blood. He's conquered all the enemies that could ever rob us. And he's there seated at the right hand of all glory and power. And he's got all power tonight. And he'll exercise it on our behalf. And nothing and no one shall ever be allowed to stand between us and what God hath prepared for them that love him. Blessed be the name of God, God our Father, God the Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who hath appointed us in him and through him as heirs of this indescribable glory. Amen. O Lord our God, we do indeed lift up our hearts in praise and in thanksgiving for such a prospect, for such a vision of glory and of what thou hast prepared for us. And above all, this night, O God, we thank thee for the certainty and the assurance of it all. 
Oh, God, make us wise to these things. Lord, we feel ashamed that we have ever been depressed in thy sight and in thy presence, that we have ever listened to the devil or to any voice of accusation or of uncertainty, that we ever have paid any attention to this passing world with its moth and its rust and its thieves and its vanishing pleasures and supposed joys. O Lord, open the eyes of thy people. Grant that we may be able to read our title deeds plainly and clearly by faith tonight. Grant us, O God, the sealing of the Spirit one by one upon it all, that we may know that we are children, and because we are thy children, that we are thine heirs and joint heirs with thy beloved Son, our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And now, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship and the communion of the Holy Spirit abide and continue with us now this night, throughout the remainder of this hour, short and certain earthly life and pilgrimage, and until we shall enter in upon the inheritance, until the day of the redemption of the purchased possession, until we shall be safely in the glory everlasting. Amen. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust audio library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.